Again, my name is Pastor Milo. We are so glad that you decided to be with us this weekend. Uh, Pastor Mario's away visiting family, and Pastor Brian was leading uh, this morning, and so it's kind of neat for us to be able to have those opportunities to rotate around, and each of us get to play instruments, and I got to lead last week, and Mario got to preach, and so uh, for those of you who are here week after week, it's just such a celebration for us as a team to be able to uh, kind of work off of each other in that way, and so uh, it's definitely an encouraging thing for us to be able to do that uh, this weekend. So happy Memorial Day weekend. How many of you, raise your hands if you've got really big plans for the weekend? There we go. All right, there's, there's one in the back. But actually, to, to be honest with you, this is my favorite part about Memorial Day weekend is that you don't actually generally have really big plans. So, so our family, we intend, we'll probably walk to the end of our street and watch the parade as it goes by tomorrow afternoon. But other than that, there's no real big plans for the weekend, and that's part of the beauty of Memorial Day weekend. I hope that you have an opportunity to spend time with family. I hope that you uh, can add to the repertoire of stories that you will tell by something that happens this weekend uh, that you get to enjoy with your friends, your family, with your neighbors. Uh, it's just supposed to be a great time to get together. Uh, but don't forget, of course, why we celebrate Memorial Day. Uh, we celebrate Memorial Day because someone who went before us died so that we have the opportunity to live in this country and in this place. Uh, because of those men, I have the right to preach from this platform this morning the gospel. I have the right to be able to proclaim God's Word week after week after week, and that is something uh, that we definitely need to celebrate. We have the right to pursue peace, prosperity, and happiness because of those who died to make us free. Uh, Memorial Day is designed to help us remember something, right? And so uh, you think about the ways that we remember people, remember those that we have lost. And probably the largest ways, if you've ever visited uh, Washington, D.C., you will see the Lincoln Memorial or the Washington Monument. These are incredible monuments that help us remember what these men stood for. And there's many other monuments and memorials that are there as well. But those are the two that come to my mind this morning to be able to tell you that they're there so that we can remember uh, those men who have gone uh, before us. But in our own lives, in our own ways, we don't always do those type of things to remember someone that, that we love. Uh, sometimes we do something much more personal than that. Uh, something is personal for me. I, I wear a bracelet that reminds me of the one uh, that I lost. There's some of you have a small picture maybe that you have stuck on your mirror or at a bulletin board at work. Uh, there, there's just a way that you remember uh, the one that you have lost. And that legacy and living for their legacy, as you know, if you've lost someone, is the greatest way uh, that you can uh, mourn their loss is to celebrate their life. Uh, for us as a family, our son, you've heard us tell a story a number of times, but it was nine years ago that we lost our son. And uh, last weekend, we planted a tree in our front yard as part of our uh, memorial to our son. Uh, it's one that we lived in a house in South Carolina. We planted a tree there, same, same type of tree. And uh, we didn't try to bring it with us from South Carolina to New York. And so we finally were able to plant a tree again. And it's a real special, it's called a redbud tree that when it grows, uh, the flowers actually, or the, it flowers first. And then the leaves are in the shape of red hearts. It's the most gorgeous thing in the world. And uh, we've got these itty bitty red hearts that are starting to appear on our tree that we planted this weekend. And it's just 
it's fun for us. So uh, come by and see our tree sometime. We'd love to tell you about it. Uh, but we do these things to help us remember uh, the ones that we have lost. But you realize that as Christians, each and every Sunday is our memorial Sunday for the one who we celebrate and the one that we worship. The reason why we gather together on the first of the week every single week is so that we can celebrate the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we gather. That's why we do it on a weekly basis. This is not an annual gathering. We do it every single week as a reminder uh, to us each and every week as we live our lives of the one that we love. And the reason that we live is so that we can celebrate his life and be able to demonstrate ourselves in a way that gives him the most glory. Lucian was a Greek author. He lived 80, 125 to 8200. So that's about 90 years after Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection. After that time frame, he was born. And during his lifetime, he wrote on numerous topics. But he came across a Christian community where he lived, and he wrote these words about the people that he observed. He said, this is Lucian. He says, It is incredible to see the fervor by which the people of that religion, meaning Christians, help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it into their heads even that they are brethren or brothers and sisters. Isn't that the legacy by which we should live? Isn't that what we should be demonstrating of? It's almost as if Lucian were looking over the shoulder of the Apostle Paul when he was writing to the different churches and how they should be living their lives. So this morning, if you've got a Bible, if you want to grab that one in front of you, there's a black Bible in the pew in front of you. Uh, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Find your way, if you will, this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And just by way of context, for those of you who've been traveling along with us, we're in this sermon series called Until Jesus Returns. And we're thinking about how do we live in the last days? And as we've looked at this and noted as we've moved our way through the series that the Apostle Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, they are writing as they are living in the last days and 2,000 years have passed and we still are living as we are in the last days. As we have looked at this book, we're kind of getting to the application section, if you will, of this letter. It's going to be very practical. We need instructions on these matters. If you have found 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, chapter 4 begins with the word, in most translations, with the word, finally. Now, I don't know how many of you have made the mistake. I know that I have sitting in the congregation listening to a pastor preach, uh, and they start a sentence with the word, now, finally. And you assume that they are in at least the last third of the message, or maybe the last 10% of the message. Ironically, the Apostle Paul starts chapter 4 with the word, now finally, and there were 43 verses before he says the word, now finally, and actually there are 46 verses after the word, Finally, And so what happens here is really this finally is he is taking what has been theory or, or even theological uh, terms and talking about these doctrinal statements. And now finally he wants to demonstrate and show for you how you live this life that he has been talking about. 
And so today's message, I hope, is going to be very practical, or even the rest of this sermon series, as we make our way through the rest of the book, it's intended to be very, very practical. The word finally is the punchline, if you will, to get us to what he has really wanted us to get to. So this morning, let's do something a little bit different. Will you stand this morning? We're going to read a little bit of chapter 4 here, beginning in verse 1. I'll do the reading. You don't have to read aloud, but I'd like you to stand as we read God's Word today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Finally, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know the instructions we gave to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and it is in this matter no one should be wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, and as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life." Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And up to this point, uh, Pastor Mario last week has moved us through this part of the passage, but I want to give it to you in context to where we start today, verse 9. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family through Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the Apostle Paul writing these things down so that we can come back and look at them 2,000 years later, and yet, because of the power of your word, it still speaks very clearly to us today in the ways that we should apply these truths. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So if you look at that verse 12, that's the basis of where this passage is taking us this morning. So that you in your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anyone. If you've got your notes with you this morning, it's a white sheet of paper that was in your bullets. And you can see the first question we want to ask this morning is, how can you be sure to live in a way that will command the respect of others? That's what verse 12 is telling us is possible, that we can live our lives in a way that would command the respect of others. Now, it is kind of a military weekend to think about some of the things that happen in the military, and there's something about a man in uniform that commands respect. When someone in uniform walks into the room, uh, you are, it, it commands your respect. Little backstory for uh, myself and Aaron, the story of Aaron and I. Uh, she broke up with me when I went to boot camp. That's the story. It happened the day before I went to boot camp. I went into the military. I decided that I was going to leave my family and my home and go serve. And man, I was going to change the world. And she broke up with me. There's a whole lot more behind it than that. But I, my plan, my strategy, what happened was about 24, 48 hours later, in my mind, somehow, I just decided that that hadn't happened. And 
I wrote her a letter every single day, basically. Uh, I don't know if it was a hundred letters, but it was a lot of letters every single day, never cognizant of the fact that no letters were returning back to me the entire time. So eventually I got one letter back in the two stages. They came uh, back to back, and I didn't know until much later that her roommates, after seeing so many letters coming from me in boot camp in the Marine Corps, uh, talking about all the hard things that I was going through, her roommate said, listen, you have got to write this boy something. And so she wrote one letter and tore it half and put it in two envelopes and sent those. It wasn't that bad. But somehow I coaxed her and God's providence to come and see me graduate from the Marine Corps boot camp. And she came and she saw me, this man in uniform. And let me tell you what. I went into boot camp weighing about 135 pounds. I wrestled in high school, and so that was like my wrestling weight. I came out of boot camp three months later at 119 pounds of raw muscle. Let me tell you what. And she saw this geek in uniform, and it wasn't the uniform that she fell in love with. She saw for a moment, whatever it was, that I was still the same person the same kid that she had fallen in love with, and that was how our story kind of reunited again, uh, was in that. So it wasn't because of the uniform, it was in spite of the uniform. But there's something about a uniform that, yes, uh, does command respect. There's something about that. Uh, but the reason why I'm bringing it up is my first point for you this morning is the point of working at love working at love. So if we are going to live in a way that will command the respect of others, we will have to be working at love. It is not an easy process. Verse 9 says, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, he says. And so your second fill-in this morning is this, words are not enough. So he could have written a number of things to them about how they should be loving. But the reality was that sometimes words are just not enough. Sometimes uh, words complicate things. Sometimes words just kind of spin us in circles. Example here, I looked up on WikiHow, how to make toast. Let me read it for you. First, step one, choosing bread. Because it's difficult to slice bread uniformly, toast is not most easily made with pre-sliced bread you get at the store. Even if you're buying bread at the bakery, you can usually have them machine slice your loaf before wrapping it up for you. If you can't get the bread that's machine sliced, slice your own bread using a bread knife. Aim for about three quarters of an inch thick. Slices that will be nice and thick will also fit in the toast slots. Step two, choose your toaster. Carefully put your slices of bread in the bread slots of the toaster. Trim off all excess bread on the ends if the slices are too big to fit in the slots. Make sure that the sides of the toast aren't rubbing against the heat coils. If you cram it in, the ends are going to burn and stink up the whole kitchen. So make sure that the slices aren't too thick or too wide. Step three, choose your darkness settings. Choose the setting for the darkness of the toast. Depending on the type and thickness of the bread and how brown or crunchy you want it, set the knob higher or lower. If you're unsure, put it on a low setting and if necessary after, repeat the process again at a higher setting. 
Toasters, especially the cheap ones, are often unreliable in the darkness knob department. So many people will complain that even at the highest setting, you will need to toast multiple times. It's best to start at light to make sure that you don't burn the toast, then increase if you need to toast it a second time. Step four, choosing your slice. Uh, Slice your toast in half or quarters or leave it whole. Traditionally, at old diners, the cooks would would slice dry toast without butter in half vertically and would slice the buttered toast at the diagonal so that the waitresses would differentiate between the quickly and easily because everyone knows that diagonally cut toast tastes better with butter, right? Choose your toppings. Spread a single topping on your toast. When you've got a perfectly crispy slice of toast straight from the toaster, it makes a great vehicle for toppings. While you can obviously put anything on the toast you'd like, there are some classics. Common toast topping classics include butter or margarine, peanut butter, jelly or jam, Nutella, eggs, fried or scrambled. Tips. If you burn the toast... You can still fix it, but the whole bread is totally burned. Then throw it in the trash and make a new one. This is why you must practice first on the lower settings of the toaster. Remember, practice makes perfect toast. Be careful which of the settings you use. If you do not know which setting to use, please refer to your toaster manual for help. If you do too high of a setting, you may burn your toast. Always attend the toast, watching ever for browning, and do not walk away. Warnings. Don't walk away, especially attending your cooking, watching it closely, as some appliances might stick in the on position or get too hot or may cause a fire, as well as burning your toast. Don't stick your body parts or metal objects into the toaster. You could get burned or electrically shocked. Nylon tongs without any metal parts is a better choice for jam bread. Or use wooden or bamboo chopsticks or tongs. Don't get your toaster or its cord anywhere near water. It's dangerous. Do you know how to make toast now? (laughs) Words are not enough. When it comes down to it, we can write a lot of things. We can talk about a lot of things when it comes to loving one another. But sometimes you actually have to do it. You actually have to live it out. And whoever wrote that article, I don't know if they were getting paid by the word or however it worked, but they took what should be the simplest thing. I literally could have set a toaster here, pushed the button, and just read you that article, and then the toast would have popped up, and you would have seen how to make toast. Now, sometime, just as an experiment, try to draw the process of how to make toast, and you'll find that there are all different ways to confuse the process of making toast. Something so simple, but it needs a little bit more than words. So if we are working at love, we need to remember that words are not enough. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. You see, our sanctification, this is what uh, Pastor Mario talked about last week, our sanctification involves a separation from evil things. And so last week we talked very specifically about sexual immorality and sexual purity when it comes to verses 3 through 8, dealing with the individual. The words are not enough. Uh, Adhesive tape, if you use adhesive tape, if you're a duct tape fan, you use it all the time. It is designed at its highest quality. It's first purpose is the first time you use it. If you tear it off and stick it on something else, it does have some adhesive qualities, yes. But when you tear it off and stick it on something else, 
it loses its adhesiveness, right? Every step of the process, it loses something. (coughs) So it is with sexual purity, and sexual immorality does the same thing. It pulls away from what it was intended to be. So in verses 3 through 8, we see that when it comes to the individual and how they care their lives individually. But also, as it picks up here in verse 9, not only should we remain pure individually, uh, verse 9 is saying we need to remain pure in our love for one another. Paul uses the Greek word Philadelphia. That's the word that's behind what we see translated as love. What does the word Philadelphia mean? Brotherly love. It's a city of brotherly love, the city of Philadelphia. So in that, and this was used in secular writings uh, as the affection between natural brothers and sisters in a family. And so when I was being written about the early church and I was saying they actually think that they are family. They actually think that they belong to the same family. That's exactly what Paul is looking for here, is that there's this love between members of the family of God, the church. Love ought to be the distinguishing mark of the church. Let me say that one more time. Love ought to be, love for one another ought to be the distinguishing mark, excuse me, of the church. We got to be working at love. Words are not enough. Secondly, the next fill-in, follow the directions. Follow the directions. Now today I'm going to ask you, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to ask you to turn around a few different times for other passages in Scripture. So here we read, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. So if he's saying that we've been taught by God to love each other, we ought to maybe look at some of those passages to see what God has taught us. So today in our message today, I'm going to ask you four different times to look for different passages. So here we go. Here's number one. Get your hands, keep your finger where we are right now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and turn over, if you will, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Paul is saying that you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, that God has given us directions by which to love. So if we look over in John chapter 13, let's see what he says. John chapter 13, verse 34. He says this, A new commandment I give to you. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with the word commandment, but it is not a suggestion. It is not something that we are supposed to take lightly. He says this is a command. This is what you are supposed to do. I am giving it to you. This is Jesus speaking. If you have, like me, the words of Christ in red in your Bible, it is in red in this section because Jesus has spoken it for us to hear. This is instructions that he has given to us, the directions he has given to us. A new commandment I give to you. Take your pencil, your pen, mark this, that you circle it, love one another, even as I have what? Circle it, loved you. That you also circle it, mark it, love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have, circle it, love for one another. We have been taught to love each other. Why? So that they will all know that you are my disciples, Jesus says. It will be the distinguishing factor for all the world to see because you actually like being around each other, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. He has demonstrated it 
for himself. That was passage number one. Here comes passage number two. Turn over a couple pages to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. It says this. This is my what? This is my commandment that you circle, love one another, just as I have circled it, loved you. Greater what? Love. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. You yourselves, he's saying, you have been taught to love one another by God himself, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. He has demonstrated it for you that you would love one another. Follow the directions. If we are to be working at love, we are learning that words are not enough. We need to follow the directions. And then thirdly, get better and better at it. Get better and better at it. Verse 10, and in fact, you do love all of God's family through Macedonia. He's saying you're doing a good job. You're loving all of the church family there in Macedonia. As I look at you and I I study your church, you actually do love each other. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, he's using that family terminology, to do what? To do so more and more. Now, since Christ's perfect example is our standard back there in John chapter 13, he's given us the standard. He said, do so as I have loved you. We always have room to grow. So we can always love our spouse more. We can always love our kids more. We can always love our mother-in-laws more, our fellow Christians more, our neighbors more. And it doesn't come automatically. It doesn't happen easily. It requires deliberate thought and deliberate effort. So keeping your hand there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, will you turn over a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I told you it was before passages, so this is the third one. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a passage that I am asked to often to use in sermons uh, at, at a wedding. And this is a passage that we'll read, or a uh, soon-to-be bride and, his gr- and groom will read it to each other as part of their wedding ceremony. But you understand that the, actually this passage was not written for a bride and a groom. This passage was written for the church to stand and read to one another, basically. To, to understand the role and the, and the job of the church is to demonstrate love for one another. And so if you look at this passage in chapter 13, you'll find, beginning in verse 4, the, the demonstration of love. But we should think about it in the context of loving within the local church. Loving other fellow believers. Loving and demonstrating God's love for one another. And so an exercise for you, whether you do it here, I'd rather you not check out from a talk about in the next couple of minutes, but if you need to go through this passage and, and take out the term love and insert your own name, being deliberate with your thinking about and working with loving others more, because chances are you're not improving at this commitment as much as you ought to. So Milo is patient. Now, would my fellow co-workers or my family members describe me as a patient person? Or would they say 
that I have a short fuse. Take your name and insert it in the second one. Love is kind or Milo is kind. Am I kind and gracious towards others, especially when they fall short of my expectations? Is that really the way that I am perceived by others? And you go down through this entire chapter, and you will find that there are some things for you to work on. Would you agree? Some of you are elbowing your spouse and saying, yes, there's some things for you to work on. Now, come on. There are some things for you to work on this morning, to get better at. The Apostle Paul is looking at this church in Macedonia saying, you are serving, you are loving well, but there are some things that you need to get better. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to get better at it. Find your way back to 1 Thessalonians 4, if you will. 1 Thessalonians 4. So if we are working at love, we need to remember words are not enough. We follow the directions. We need to get better and better. But he makes this transition in the passage, which is your next fill-in. We ought to be loving at work. We ought to be loving at work. Your first fill-in here is keep your cool or keep your composure. Maybe it would be an easier word for some of you. Verse 11 says this, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, I know it's not Christmas time, but how many of you are fans of the movie Elf? Again, real big on the crowd participation this morning. All right. So in the movie Elf, there's this elf as an adult who thinks he's, a, he's an elf, and now he is working in uh, this, this uh, department store. And so he's just walking around grinning at everybody with a big smile on his face. And, and he gets pulled aside, and his boss says, what are you doing? He says, I'm smiling. Smiling's my favorite. Anyone remember what the boss says to him? He says, work. Make work your favorite. Work is your new favorite. See, this passage says you should make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That's the opposite of restlessness. A quiet life is being at peace. To understand, I'm not talking about complacency. I'm not talking about being okay with where I am and there's nowhere I can go and there's nothing I can do better than where I am right now and so I'm just here, Eeyore. But talking about keeping composure, knowing that you are doing what you're supposed to do, knowing that you are leading a quiet life because within your mind you are at peace with what God is doing in your heart. And understanding that your job, your work is your favorite because God has put you there. God has given you this opportunity. Now, usually when you see the words, make your ambition, and when it comes to work, usually most of us are used to there being some goals, and there used to being some tracking systems that say, last year you were at step A, and now you're at step C or step D, and so we can promote you now, right? And there's nothing the matter with that type of ambition as long as that's not what's driving the bus, as long as work is not your favorite in the sense of what it means that it drives everything. No. Keep your cool. Keep your composure. Focus on the main things. Some of you are like me, and you can become wildly passionate about details that don't matter. And you can get all bent out of shape about things that have no significance to, at the end of the day. And you're really upset when it comes down to it. And it's really 
the next fill-in for you. None of your own business. It's none of your business. Secondly, mind your own business. I wonder if that's in Scripture anywhere. Look at verse 11. You should mind your own business. You should mind your own business. How many of you have been in a traffic accident? I'm not the insurance guy. I'm just wondering if you've been in an accident, right? And uh, so if you've been in an accident, how many of you, was it because you were what's called rubbernecking? You were paying attention to a different accident or something like that? Any of you? Yep, there's a few. Yep. So usually, particularly on the interstate, when there's an accident, uh, traffic slows down on the other side of the interstate, right? And it gets to be a dangerous place because everybody wants to slow down and see what was going on. And traffic gets to be super dangerous because people are looking and not doing what? Minding their own business. This happens in our workplace, in our lives as well. I, I know that I have been guilty of this a number of times in the past, particularly when I was in the military. That was something that I got a bad reputation for, is walking up on a conversation and just inserting myself where I had no business belonging and wondering why then I got my head bit off. Why did you get involved? Why get in that mess? Why get in the middle of things when you have no business doing that? You should mind your own business. Do your own affairs. Don't be a Christian sponge or a freeloader or just tracking along and letting everybody else uh, lead for you. And don't be a leech spiritually. That's not what he's talking about here. Christians are to be involved in helping others, but Christians ought not to be in other people's business. Does that make sense? What he is teaching here is to mind your own business. Now, lastly, our fill-in is do your job. Do your job and work with your hands just as we told you. Now, working with your hands specifically is about getting to work. The job of the day, get busy, get after it. Pursue it. It's not necessarily saying the only job that you should be doing is one that is manual in nature. Now, yesterday was a gorgeous day. Uh, the way that my neighborhood is set out, uh, you can stand in, in my backyard and see about nine different backyards all kind of uh, tying together. I don't know if your neighborhood is like that, but we all kind of come together. And one of our neighbors has gotten a new puppy, and his puppy is running around and playing with all the other puppies in the neighborhood. But he doesn't have a fence that goes around his entire yard. And so he spent the day yesterday putting in the post and putting in the fence uh, there to fence in the rest of his backyard. You could see that it was a lot of work uh, on a hot day to be out there driving fence posts and be able to, to stretch out all of the, uh, of the wire uh, to be able to put the fence up. It was a lot of work. But wouldn't you know it in the evening, and if you've worked hard like this on a manual day and done something like this, sitting out on his back porch, he's just enjoying looking at a chain link fence. That's a gorgeous chain link fence. Have you ever had that type of feeling? He said, that is the best looking chain link fence I have ever seen. Because there's something about doing manual labor, there's something about doing work and knowing that the task is completed, that is a very special and rewarding process. It's not a whole lot different if you have turned in your final paper. Where's my college students? None of them are here because they turned in their papers and took off. When you turn in that final paper, there's something rewarding about that. You did all of this work and you send it in and it's done. It is what it is and it's finished. 
There's something about that, and that is the same process that Paul is talking about here. Work with your hands just as we told you. Not necessarily the manual labor, but working as opposed to being idle. I told you to have you turn to four passages. Will you turn over? This is the last one I want you to look up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. See, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, the book that we're looking at now, but apparently they didn't get the point because he says it in passing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he deals with it more specifically. Beginning in verse 6, it says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teachings you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we had the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat." So scripturally what is going on, the background of what is going on here in Thessalonica is there's a group of people who love each other tremendously. And yet because they actually do believe that Jesus is going to return, as the sermon series implies, until Jesus returns, they believe that he is coming and so what they decided to do was put their feet up until he returned. Now a number of times within the last century, even in our history of my lifetime, there's been a book that came out, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Some of you are nodding because you remember that. I was like seven, so I don't really remember, but I know that it was out there. Y2K, the year 2000, we thought this would be the end. Most recently, it was like 2012, 2013. That was when the Mayan calendar ended. Remember that? And so there's this, there's groups of people who said, now because we know that today is the day, we're going to do what? We're going to sell property. We're going to, we're we're going to get rid of everything. We're going to just wait until Jesus returns and just let things go. You know, Martin Luther was once quoted as saying this. Oh, I got to find it, make sure I got the right quote. I lost it. Well, I'll tell you what he quoted without giving you the actual quote. Is that fair? Because I want to get it right. He quoted that if I believe that Jesus is going to return tomorrow, one of the godliest things I could do is plant a tree today. Something like that. And understanding there's this tension back and forth between knowing that Jesus will return and yet knowing that we have been put here for a purpose. We are to be diligent at this. And so that last uh, quote we have there at the end of your outline says this, we are to work diligently at loving each other and we are to act in ways that show God's love at work. First Thessalonians 4 has gotten very, very practical. As the band comes this morning, what you should be hearing from me this morning is God wills work as a way for us to build bridges by which the good news can travel. We build bridges by a hard work ethic. We, we work and we, we strive and we toil and we love and we work at loving and we love working so that what? We can share the gospel so that there would be, uh, that we would command the respect of others. 
And by doing so, we work in reliance on God's power according to His pattern of excellence. And in doing so, He's the one that gets the glory so that people can cross back and forth across that bridge to be able to experience the love of Christ. Now this morning and each week we ask you, there's a connection card in front of you, in the pew in front of you. It's a white card. Some of you see it each week and decide, you know what, I'm not really worried about that today. But today I'd like to ask you to take that card out, write on it this morning what it would be for you to work at loving more. Or what it would look like for you to love while at work. To demonstrate what it means to really be like Jesus Christ. To demonstrate what it would really mean to be commanding of respect because you are living a holy, sanctified life. I would personally love the opportunity to pray for you this week as you try to take steps to live that out. And as the ushers come this morning, what we do each week is we ask you to turn in those connection cards. We ask you to uh, turn in envelopes as you are giving to what God is doing here as a church. And each of those things is a way for you to move. It is a moving closer to what God has called you to do and to be. And just like the Apostle Paul is telling those in in Thessalonica, he is asking them to say, can you get better at it? I'll ask you this morning, if you are a Christ follower here today, what steps do you need to make this week to get better and better at serving Him? If you don't know Jesus this morning, you need to know that He loves you. As we read earlier, no love would be greater than one who would give His life for His friends. And He gave His life for you and for me. So dear Lord, we love you and praise you this morning. We pray, Lord, that your word has spoke. Lord, that we would be working at love, that we would be loving at work. Lord, that it would be tremendously practical this week of what you are saying to us, Lord, that we would leave and in practical ways be able to demonstrate what you have done in our lives. Lord, you are great. As we'll sing here in a moment, you have put the very breath in our lungs. Lord, we thank you for that, Lord, but we give all the glory and praise back to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.